Welcome to Think Big for Africa podcast. On this podcast, we will bring you interesting conversations with local, national, and international African leaders from all works of life, home and abroad. Leaders who are doing their bits to progress Africa's development. Conversation topics will range from education, science, health, leadership, politics, business, and many other global issues. Conversations about everything that concerns Africa's development. Africa has so many wonderful achievers worldwide, and this is exactly what we will bring to you on Think Big for Africa podcast. Stay tuned. Hello. Welcome to the Think Big for Africa podcast. My name is Ekene Banye your host. Today, I have another beautiful young lady. Uh, She is a consultant breast surgical oncologist and a professor in surgery at the University of Aga Khan University Medical College in Nairobi, Kenya. Her name is Miriam Muterbi. Miriam, how are you? I'm very well, Akene. How are you? How are you today? I'm very good. I'm very good. Thank you for being patient. Uh, thank, thank God you called me while I was on the, mo- on the motorway, driving very <laughs> fast. Yeah, yeah. Good. So, Miriam, uh, I know there was a reason why I wanted you to be on this podcast today. And uh, I want you to tell my audience a little bit about you and your work, and they will soon realize the reason. So tell me, did you hear me? Uh, Yes, I I just heard uh, the beginning. We went off a little. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, you you pretty much at least what I got was you wanted us. Uh, you wanted me to share a little about my work. Yes, about yourself first, and then about your work. Yes, because I like okay. I like my guests to to know something about something a, a, a little bit personal about you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Um. Huh. Well. Uh. I I like to say. Uh. I'm in the hope business uh which um i always say i'm i'm a uh, breast cancer surgeon by day and then a um clinical epidemiologist and health systems researcher by night okay uh, just to clarify uh, i'm an assistant professor not yet a full professor okay, okay. <laughs> hoping hoping to get okay. there eventually but uh, my research focus has been on understanding barriers to access for women who have cancers in our region okay. and uh, trying to design interventions that talk to those barriers. Um, in terms of a um, something a little personal about me, um, I would say um, I 
like to cook but can't be bothered to spend <laughs> 21 million hours trying to prepare something and so i i am um, i'm currently running a random instagram page called the uh, indolent cook okay. where um the trick is like you know healthy meals but prepared in you know under half an hour mm. it's actually very interesting um my initial my initial sort of uh, name for the um for the page was going to be the lazy cook ah. and instagram was already like no you can't do lazy cook 600 so i was like how many lazy cooks are there, <laughs> are there, <out> there? <laughs> so yeah back to back to the indolent cook <laughs> okay okay yes. so so you are a surgeon so let me break it down the way i understand it and I, I, okay. I think it will help also have my audience to understand this you are a surgeon one you are a doctor and a surgeon okay and yeah. drilling down you are an oncology surgeon right right and yeah. again drilling down you are focused on breast oncology Okay. Correct. So, yes. so okay. So one, <laughs> very good. You're a doctor. Very good so far. Yeah, you are a doctor. You yes. are a surgeon. You are focused on oncology, and you are focused on oncology in the breast. Correct. Very good. Very good. I guess. Okay. So now, so just, the question this shows that just pretty much uh, reflects on how much time we've spent in school hey ah, exactly exactly <laughs> so this uh, is this is what i want to know and i yeah. think my some members of my audience will want to know how did it get here it's important right yeah yeah i, I think uh, I, I i just always joke because there was a time that um you know, when people would write, um, you know, sometimes when you have to go and fill out forms and they ask your occupation. Mm. And I, 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 I always had to write student because it feels like you're <laughs> pretty much in school yeah, for most yeah. of your life. But um, the path to surgical oncology is, well, first you need to have your um, uh, degree in medicine. Okay. Um, and um, for us, we usually do it as an undergrad uh, program. So you do your uh, five to six years of of um, of um, general medicine, and then you do a um, degree in general surgery because that's the background. Which, yeah. uh, depending on the program, takes anywhere between five to six years. And then um, you do a subsequent fellowship uh, in surgical oncology or breast surgical oncology, which takes about two years. Um, and so, yeah, that's why sometimes you just feel like, um, <laughs> occupation student, mm, <laughs> but the good thing mm. is, I mean, as a clinician anyway, it's not necessarily, I mean, you are a permanent student because again, um, it's, it's self-directed, but pretty much lifelong learning because yes. what tends to happen is medicine and especially oncology is so dynamic in terms of um new advances new techniques so you absolutely need to keep you need to stay on top of your game you need to be you know reading consistently and constantly um to see what's new what is the latest evidence so that you're always giving best practice for your patients yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. good good yeah. now again uh some of my 
my audience may not really understand when we use the word oncology. Okay. Mm -hmm. So use the layman language to, to describe what you do, actually. The layman language, everybody knows. Yeah. Well, keeping it simple, I would just say what I said earlier, a breast cancer surgeon. Exactly. Meaning we do surgery yeah. <laughs> for breast cancers. Yes. That's that's a simple way of uh, good. looking at it. Good, yeah. good, yeah. good. Thank you. Thank you for that. So, I've read online that you are the first female uh, oncology surgeon uh okay breast oncology surgeon in kenya is that is that correct that is correct okay. but uh thankfully not the last yeah um, of, of course of course not, of course not. <laughs> i'm happy so, to report there's a few more in training and uh, one who's just completed the training so excellent excellent hopefully in the next couple of years there's going to be a whole lot more excellent for sure excellent so yeah. so being the first at any anything is challenging okay uh so you are in a unique place that uh, 99.9% uh, of people uh, are not in, in every profession because there's only, only one first, okay, for anything, okay? Uh, so how does it feel to be the first female breast cancer surgeon in, in Kenya? Um, I think... That's an interesting question. I think for the most part, um, it's it's a responsibility because, again, um, you do want to, um, I mean, it's not just about being first. It's about how do you, you know, expand the services? How do you create an impact? How do you make sure that you're, you don't necessarily want to be, you don't want your accolades to be the first, right? Yeah. Uh, you certainly want it to be looking at in terms of impact, what have you been able to do? And what have you been in terms of, you know, influencing healthcare, influencing yeah. strategy? And because it's also, as you said, a responsibility because then, um, and, and sometimes it's an internal pressure you put on yourself, but yeah. you have the responsibility to show other, you know, um, clinicians, both male, male and female, that, you know, you can do this and yeah. you can have, you know, an impact uh, to your community and also ensure that if there's any other people who are interested or engaged and you sort of show them um, the way to get there. And so there's definitely a rule I would feel, I mean, additional pressure you put on yourself to say you need to be a good role model because then you are sort of setting the bar, as it were, for everyone coming up to you. Yeah. And so, unfortunately, as you said, the novelty is this is the only interaction somebody's had. So you'd better make sure it's absolutely it's a good one. excellent. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so I, I, I also read that, uh, uh, since December 2020, you were appointed to the board of directors of the Union of for International Cancer Control, UICC. Tell me, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Tell me about that, about the UICC and your role 
as a member of the board of directors? Yes, so the uh, UICC, as you said, is the Union for International um, Cancer Control. Yep. And it's one of the um, global bodies that uh, tries to address cancer control uh, in several countries. Mm. And so they have about um, they have about 1,500 member organizations, okay. about 1,200 representing about 172 uh, countries that represent pretty much the world's major cancer societies, yeah. ministries of health, um, patient groups, and um, also includes a couple of um, policy influential policymakers, researchers, and experts, all who are geared towards. Um, helping to reduce, I mean, helping to improve care along the entire um, cancer care continuum, whether it's all the way from prevention, treatments, control, palliative care, so covering the whole spectrum. And I think the UICC is unique in a way that it's able to bring the global community together and put it towards um, specific action points, um, key around advocacy, um, training and fellowships, where you try to have knowledge exchange, um, where uh, different clinicians from different parts of the world uh, can go and ac- um, access short um, short courses or even longer fellowship trainings and return okay. to their home environment. And this is not just safe for doctors, it's for the entire spectrum, palliative care, um, clinicians, ner- oncology nurses. So they do try to work around capacity, but it's also about knowledge sharing. And so uh, we have, had to sort of shift the model um, to virtual. And so there have been a lot, quite a number of regional sort of dialogues where people get to interact, yeah. um, exchange ideas around cancer control, what's working for you, what's, you know, what have we had to rethink as a result of the pandemic? How could we better deliver care? And so that's definitely, I would say, um, provided a platform for um, that knowledge exchange. And then, of course, from a policy level, uh, we do have the World Cancer Leaders Meeting. Um, that's actually coming up in, in, in Boston um, later this year in October. Okay. But that's pretty much bringing anyone who's anyone, so to speak, or influential in terms of um, cancer care globally. And yeah. that is trying to direct the um, narrative or trajectory of where we feel that cancer care should be heading and what the um, leaders should be prioritizing for their patients in their respective um, environments. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it is it is um, humbling and, again, quite a responsibility in order to think of you're going along all these different aspects of care, whether it's yeah. from the policy level, whether it's from the treatment level, whether it's from the advocacy. Again, advocacy, I feel, is something that we definitely need to develop a lot more of. And sorry, I'm going to go off on a tangent. No, I feel very, <laughs> quite passionate I'm happy about. For you to do that. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel that uh, we've we've definitely had an increase in ad, um, cancer advocacy. Yeah, but I think part of the challenges, and this is part of my research as well, some of the barriers that we have, uh, especially to the um, to our cancers getting diagnosed early, is that um, there's still a lot of stigma yeah. around um, yeah. around cancers, and then um, there's also a lot of fatalism, um, where which means that you know. People hear cancer and think, you know, they're already dead. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so, Mm -hmm. if you think you're already dead, then why, in heaven's name, would you sort of go to get treatment? Yeah, yeah. right. And then there's also, I would say, a bit of 
Um, so those are, I would say, and then there's lots of alternative therapies and things. So there's definitely a need um, for advocacy and, and I would say um, strategic advocacy. Now okay. we have uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, I think we've increased the awareness advocacy, meaning we've gone out and you know, sort of sensitized the community yeah. and sort of try to get people in. But I think there's lots of roles around where we can develop our advocacy. Mm. For instance, there's lots of, uh, as you said, as a result of stigma, there's lots of discrimination. Yeah. And I have patients who um, basically from our work, patients tell me, listen, you even at work, people are looking at you like a quote-unquote coffin in waiting. So nobody's, you know, you either lose your job or wow. you, you're not, you're not, you know, yeah, because they're like, you know, you're taking too many sick offs or whatever, or um, you, you know, you can't qualify for promotion because why do you want to promote you and you're going to be, you know, keeling over in like another couple of months, that kind of thing. And mm. so sometimes patients won't even disclose their status to yeah. um, their employer just to avoid some of those challenges. And I'm like, legal advocacy how do you then protect the rights of patients right yes um again the other thing is of course one of the major barriers to care is around um access and the fact that many of our patients in sub-saharan africa are having to pay out of pocket yeah. right for their health care and that frequently results in catastrophic health expenditure yeah. and mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. end result of that is not only do you get diagnosed with advanced disease you don't frequently complete your care yeah. And I mean, I would say locally, for instance, we've, uh, they've had a national um, uh, hospital insurance fund okay. that has tried to mitigate some of the costs. But it's still, I mean, it's, it's a great start and we're definitely seeing more patients completing their um, cancer treatment journey. Yeah. But more, I think, needs to be done. I mean, I remember when I was in internship and these are like truly heartbreaking sort of stories. Like what would happen, Akene, um, you would find, for instance, like if you're going to treat um, a cancer with chemotherapy. Yeah. How the chemotherapy works is that, you know, the cell, the cells take a particular cycle and they regenerate over a period of time. Yeah. And so what happens is that you have to give the chemotherapy at sort of uh, certain intervals. Yeah. Just so that it increases its effectiveness. Yeah. And so what would happen sometimes is you would give your initial first dose of chemotherapy and yeah. the patient would just disappear. Right? Wow. And ideally you should be giving them every, every, you know, three, like three, every weeks, three weeks. Every three weeks. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're trying to call or whatever and you can't trace the patient and they come back after six months. Yeah. And uh. after six months they're, they're coming in and they're so excited. They're like, Doc, we've raised enough money for the next cycle. Uh, and you're like, oh my God, how do you even, where do you even start? You're, sta you're I mean, starting again. Exactly. I mean, you're probably starting with more advanced disease. Exactly. The exactly. cancer hasn't just been sitting around. Yeah, for the six yeah. Months, it, has been, right? it has been growing. Exactly, exactly. And so, I mean, part of the National Hospital Insurance Fund has helped to cover some of that, but you'll find that maybe you need eight cycles and maybe they cover half of that and stuff. So those are things that need to be um, organized. And then, of course, in many countries, again, they don't necessarily have a national insurance fund. So you're still having to pay out of pocket. And so even the implications of, you know, financial toxicity and who's advocating for this, who's, uh, you know, uh, we're sort of saying globally, we need to start thinking about pushing for universal health coverage. But even with universal health coverage and you as a uh, having a financial background will appreciate that, you know, it's 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 
it's a limited kitty. So how do you, you know, think of creative ways around uh, revenue generation for cancer patients? Do you think about, you know, sustainable small, you know, uh, business enterprises or things that can help tide them through? What is the financial sort of uh, recourse for patients who are yeah. having to um, get their care without necessarily sort of breaking the bank? Yeah. Um, See, uh, healthcare, I'll tell you, healthcare, for me, should be a universal right. You know. Absolutely. Uh, 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 Absolutely. Uh, see, I will tell you a, a little bit about about me. Uh, I was ten years ago. I was a banker, okay, uh, and I had a stroke, okay. And since then, since then, in fact, ten years next month, August, mm-hmm. okay, yeah. I had a stroke. Since then, I haven't been able to go back to normal work, okay. Yeah. That's the truth. Yeah. Uh, and I would, I would, I would say this. I want my audience to hear because I, I know some people who are going to be policymakers are listening to me. I'm able to sit down today, have this conversation without worrying because my healthcare costs is born by the national healthcare insurance okay in the, in the in the uk the nhs all right and within the last uh 24 months to 30 24 36 months i have had a family member go through breast cancer okay and i was i was able to help her with the I took her to, to the to the all her uh, appointments took her through the uh, chemotherapy that's why I know so much about that okay because I, I've gone through the process okay within the last 24 months yeah. okay these okay. healthcare issues are devastating in the the minimum thing is that you can work, okay, or you can do minimum at work. Yeah. And when it's combined with the loss of income, it's so devastating. Okay? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you can imagine, Akene, as you said, I mean, you know, getting a stroke and sort of going through the whole rehabilitative journey. Yeah. Um, must have been quite a challenge and it's oh, also yes. just, you know, just as, as even I, as just I talk to, as I talk to you, I'm still disabled. So I mean yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm 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 doing well, but that's yeah. so many challenges. Okay. Absolutely, and, absolutely. Yeah. And, we, and we need we like need to when, we need to be able to t- help our help our our citizens to recover from whatever health uh, challenges they are going through without demonizing them in terms of uh, uh, you're sick, you're that, you can't work, you know? So we, we need to Absolutely. find a way to Absolutely. do all this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And like with a stroke and like with cancer, it's never a one-off. It's a whole journey you're going through. And yep. so getting yep. the support through that entire journey yep. is absolutely critical in order to, you know, just 
have you know improve your quality of life yes um and and give meaning because otherwise you're already having two hits as it were you first you have the first hit of the diagnosis and then the second hit of the um of the financial implications and then yep. the third hit is pretty much you know what the community is saying about you or yeah. you know some in um and some of these are part of the social cultural barriers which is some of the work i do um in communities in sub saharan africa and um we actually realize that sometimes i think we don't necessarily talk enough about the cultural barriers um and you know sometimes you'll you'll go home and you'll say honey i have a cancer and you're told honey there's the door don't let it hit you right <laughs> and yeah. you know in initially going in i mean i i i you know sometimes as researchers you have a few maybe um uh by bi- inherent biases or you know hypotheses and stuff yeah and so we did this study in a couple of countries in east africa and looked at both you know public and private um public and private institutions as a as a surrogate for you know social economic status okay. just to try and see um is it maybe a factor of you know lack of education or awareness or whatever and i can i can i think this is going to be mind blowing for you it didn't matter whether you were in the top of the range no um, i'm 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 not surprised i i i on i it, fully understand it, it was still literally i have patients um you know being told you know after surgery don't come home like yeah. figure it out but uh, we you're yeah. not welcome anymore yeah. and so those are some of the um issues that we do need to tackle uh especially around um the community sort of perception of cancers and the invariable and the inherent i mean I would say the attendant stigma that comes with some of those yeah. perceptions as well yeah um even in terms of again um one of the again some of the bar- I was just saying that I mean we've talked about the financial aspects and a little about um you know what the community is 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 doing but I I also say I mean we also have to acknowledge our own role as healthcare mm. providers yeah. uh in actually being barriers to care and so um we've actually had to shift the narrative around um breast cancer because well and other cancers generally because uh what what we would say about 5 10 years ago is patients in sub-saharan africa present late meaning they you know present to the hospital yeah. uh, at an advanced stage of disease but sort of doing an in-depth sort of in a look into you know our own role in 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 the um in in these uh what, so we've actually moved towards saying delayed diagnosis because what mm. we've realized is that um at least certainly in many parts of sub-saharan africa can you'll be in- interested to know that a patient will on average see at least three to four health workers before a definitive diagnosis of yeah. their cancer is cancer. made and so it just underscores the need to have a well-informed um educated workforce that are able to you know detect the signs and symptoms on yeah. make appropriate timely referrals yeah. all of which has been a considerable challenge um in 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 our setting and so looking at how do we empower health workers again sometimes health workers patient will come again with advanced disease and they're like why are you here go home and die right which is again a disservice to the patient because irrespective of whichever stage they're at mm. there is treatment 
Yes. Now, the goals of treatment may change. For instance, yep. if you're having an early cancer, then you're yep. looking to treat and cure. Whereas with a more advanced cancer, um, you, uh, you are treating, but with the aim to control. Yes. And certainly we have many patients who, you know, having treatments with, met- with the metastatic cancers who are stable on medication for years yes. and years on end. But yes. if the health worker as well is telling you, hey, you know, what's happening? Like you're, you know, you're a gone case, then mm. that further, you know, reinforces the fatalism of cancer care. And so yes. those are part of the areas that we have been working hard to try and um, tackle. Great, great. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. So, uh, like I like I said earlier, uh, you are first on your space. Uh, you have opened the, the the gates for many other women to follow your footsteps. Okay, but I know there are opportunities and challenges in that on that road. So, can you? So our sisters who are looking, listening to you and uh, deciding that they, they want to follow your, your footsteps, what are those opportunities available? And then what are some of the challenges that, hey, they might face on the road? Um, thanks, Akane. I think one of the key pieces of advice that uh, someone once told me is, is, is find your passion, find your passion. Okay. Um, sometimes, um, sometimes people say, I want to do this because my dad thinks or my mom will I feel understand really, that really clearly. <laughs> and in sub-Saharan Africa for the longest time, you either had to do medicine, law, engineering, or yes. I forget what the fourth one was, but there's kind of like limited options. Uh, accountants. I think engineer. slowly come. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. So we've, we've, we've uh, slowly come to the realization which um, success and what our definitions of those are. Yes. But I think the important thing for you to succeed at whatever it is you're doing, you need yes. to be passionate about it and you need to have interest. I always tell um, young ladies who are coming in to see me, I'm like, you know what, if you're going to be up at 2 a.m., which invariably mm. sometimes in surgery yes. <laughs> is going to happen a fair amount of time, you had better be doing what you love because yes. you can imagine you're up and you're, you know, it, it's, it's, and again, the thing is, the second thing is there's no substitute for hard work. So it doesn't really matter um, whichever field um, you're in, whether it's, you know, you're deciding to go into the arts, you to, um, you know, maybe explore your, uh, yeah. And I was just saying my second bit was that, um, there honestly isn't any substitute for hard work. So oh, yeah. irrespective of whichever field you're in, um, you do need to do the time. You do need to put the hours, you do need to dedicate. And there may have to be sacrifices. You may have to think, you know what? Um, I want to pursue my sports. I'm going to, you know, not go out and hang out with my friends. I'm going to go to the, you know, tennis court and, you know, <laughs> hit a few yeah. balls or whatever. Or I'm going to spend some time and study a little more on this. But everything in life that's meaningful or impactful does require hard work. And Very so, good. you know, some sometimes people sort of think there's going to be a quick fix. Mm. <laughs> As you've clearly seen from the number of years we're in school, there's no yeah. quick fix. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there's no, there's no quick flick fix anywhere. 
See, yeah. no matter what people want to do, no matter how, see, people, especially in this era where we all can see the successful people in all areas of life, but we, we, we start seeing them when they have reached a level. And unfortunately, we haven't seen any of the work in the background which they have done consistently over time you know yeah. so we only see them Absolutely. when they are shining and we say yes i want to be like him i want to be like her and then when we start doing the work we get, we get disappointed because we want exactly. to achieve the exactly. the the the, 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 yeah. the the glamour you know without doing the exactly, work exactly you know, so. exactly and and I, mean, I think for anyone who's trying to strive i mean it's important to also realize that you are going to make mistakes there yeah. are going to be disappointments yeah and um sort of looking at uh, some of the profiles of i, I think that there is the anticipation that i will do this and i will you know succeed a hundred percent whereas if you look at um some of the major i would say leaders in our time they're saying i've you know i've failed you know i've tried you know maybe See? 200 times yeah i failed 97 times exactly and maybe i've succeeded 33 times yeah. the 33 that have made a difference but so nobody's sort of talking about the 99 times where you totally bombed right <laughs> and so looking at how do i you know in, in a quick fix or an instant fix for this um so this is i'm going to go off on a tangent but it's just something silly that's come through my mind um somebody was saying you know we're living in the world of um instant uh whatever so yeah 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 and so uh, there's this silly joke about um uh somebody who goes to um this new environment and he's suddenly bewildered by the supermarket uh to find this all this instant stuff you know Mm. like um instant uh you know mashed potato powder just add water Mm -hmm. uh you know orange juice instant you know orange juice powder just add water and stuff and then he goes down the aisle and he sees baby powder. Okay. And he and he shakes his head and he says, "What a country!" Well, I hope my my audience understand it. Well, <laughs> anyway, so uh, I like I ask you. Uh, at the beginning now maybe this question let's let's see if it makes sense uh mm-hmm. i originally taught uh, as a surgeon that uh, you don't go through the same uh study of no more uh, no more oncologists okay but it seems you you did that before you start you became a a surgeon in oncology. Yeah, so okay. just to um, explain a little, because um, part of the um, surgical oncology fellowship is you do initially have to be grounded in the principles of oncology, because Good. what okay. usually happens is um, anyone who's managing um, cancer, um, who's um, dealing with patients who have cancer, know that it's usually a multidisciplinary team yes. effort. 
And so you have the surgeon who's the one who does the surgeries, the um, a medical oncologist who's the one who usually gives the chemotherapy. Yeah. You have the radiation oncologist who's the one that sometimes gives radiotherapy where yeah. required. You have the um, uh, pathologist is the one who probably, um, you know, looks at the histology and confirms the diagnosis. You yeah. have the radiologist. You have the palliative care uh, clinicians. You have the psychologist to offer, yeah. you know, um, counseling and support. So it's pretty much a multidisciplinary yes. um, team um, affair. And so um, part of your initial training as a surgical oncologist is actually getting grounded in those principles. Those and you do ultimately have to spend time rotating in these different areas. Yeah. So you'd go to medical oncology, spend a couple of months there, radiation oncology, spend a couple of months, um, go through to the counseling, psychosocial support. So that by the time you're done with your training, you actually, in addition to the surgery, you have a um, very clear picture of, how of they the all of, of the um, process and, exactly yeah. and how this entire mosaic works always with the patient at the center but good. with the entire team around them and that's good, important good, i good. think okay. it's a very different mindset i would good, say good good so yeah. so you are you you'll be able to answer this question uh the question mm -hmm. i i want to ask you is this uh the magnitude or frequency of breast cancer in africa and then, is it increasing or decreasing in the number of frequency? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Akane. Uh, great question. Um, I would say um, global, I would say in general, cancers are on the increase and um, breast cancer certainly, because what we know currently is that um, one out of six deaths globally is due to cancer. And um, what should alarm us is that 70% of those deaths are from low and middle income countries. Hmm. Now, the if we're looking at the projections, they're saying we're almost anticipating an almost 70% increase in the number of um, new patients diagnosed by the year 2040. Now, breast cancer... Um, has increased to the extent that um, for the first time uh, as of 2020, breast cancer has now become the most commonly diagnosed um, cancer globally. It used to be lung, but now uh, breast cancer has um, sort of taken the lead, just underscoring the need. And then, of course, with the greatest projections being in low and middle income countries should create a sense of urgency um, for all of us. Yes. Um, in terms of the uh, number of cases, again, because in um, in most of sub-Saharan Africa, we don't necessarily have uh, country-based registries, yeah. but definitely uh, most, uh, uh, most uh, registries will uh, have reported an increase in, in, in the number of, 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 of um, breast cancers and patients diagnosed. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. wow. So, in Kenya, um, as of last year, we had about um, almost about 7,000 uh, patients diagnosed. But then again, that's probably um, under-reporting mm. in the absence of a national cancer registry. Yes. So the true number is probably a little, is much higher yeah. than what is actually reported. Wow. So, see, like I, I told you, I was with my family member who went through this process a few years ago. Uh, in fact, 
the 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 treatment has has been done and successfully done, but she still uh, attend clinics from time to time, you know. Yeah. Uh, but one thing I I I never saw. Uh, maybe maybe now that she's going to this clinic now, maybe they 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 talk to her about that. But when I was there, we never talked about anything about the cost. See, for me, I like to talk about cost of things. What is the root kind of root cause for this increase for cancer in, in, in itself? See, when people understand the process that causes cancer, maybe, maybe I know it's not everybody, maybe some people will start changing their if it's if it's lifestyle, then people will start changing the way they do things. You know, to ensure that that it, it doesn't happen to them. Okay, so what are the causes of cancer? You know, yeah, um, that's a great question, Akene, and actually a very complex, um, mm. a, a very complex one in its simplicity because um, the simple answer is nobody knows, right? Mm. The, the reality is, Akene, as we're both sitting here and having this wonderful conversation, is that um, we're all producing abnormal cells. Yeah. And the, our bodies are routinely sort of clearing those. Yeah. Right? Now, um, what happens and what causes the switch from this abnormal, um, this, this uh, abnormal cell that goes on to progress in certain people, nobody quite knows. I mean, there have been several theories around, and we do have a couple of demonstrated risk factors for sure. And we're going to probably maybe chat a little about those. And but it's interesting that um, if we look at it in terms of risk factors, um, we do know, as far as data suggests, that anywhere between thirty to forty percent of um, cancers can be avoided by avoiding some of these uh, risk factors. So, so please, now, please focus um, on that and. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So we do have what we call modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors. Okay. Now, non-modifiable is, for instance, the fact that um, you can't change the fact that you're, for instance, female or male. Right? Okay. If you're female, for instance, that automatically bumps up your risk of uh, breast cancer significantly, mm. right? And so you can't. We can't change the fact that we're growing older, right? Yeah. And uh, because age in itself does you know increase the chances of more abnormal cells escaping yeah. the control so basically i like to give you an analogy of um the difference between a normal cell and a cancerous cell is that the normal normal cells are like us right so they're born they're young and uh, they get into teenagehood stress their parents a little mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mature become senior members of society and contribute mm. significantly to the development of the body and then, you know, it's about 65, they're retired and told, you know, well done, good and faithful, you know, sell, go forth and, you know, <laughs> and they're removed from the system. Mm. Now, the only difference between a normal cell and a cancerous cell yeah. is that a cancerous cell has escaped the normal control mechanisms of yeah. the body. Yeah. So the cell yeah. has now become what we call immortal. And so the fact that it becomes immortal now means that it keeps on dividing and dividing and dividing with no controls. Yeah. 
And so sometimes uh, we always say, think of the, the, the cancer cell like a squatter. It now starts to take over areas that yeah. it's not supposed to. And yeah. so um, it, it, it sort of multiplies. And in time, you start to feel a lump, right? Depending on where the uh, cancer may initially present. And then being true squatters, they're always looking for other areas to occupy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they're always looking for, can I go? And so they figure out trajectories from re-spreading to the, to the um, lungs or the liver or whatever. But it's yeah. not, interestingly enough, it's not the spread that's the problem. It's the fact that you're not able to have the normal control mechanism. Yeah. So if, for instance, you know, your, the liver is um, what's supposed to, you know, remove all, um, detoxify or remove uh, harmful elements from the yeah. body. And then you have something sitting there impeding its function. Then that what what's happening is that those toxins are now accumulating in accumulating, the body yes. and are not exactly. So it's not the cancer per se; it's the fact that it affects the way your organs function that that makes the difference. Yeah. And so, as we we're saying, sort of circling back to the factors that we can modify, um, we can't change the fact about our age. We can't change the fact about the fact of growing older. But part of the risk factors and and um, one of the factors that is speculated, you know, you're asking what could probably be driving um, yeah. this increase is around uh, the concept of what we call our quote unquote westernization of mm. our lifestyle. Okay. Now, if you think about what our grandmothers did, um, they would get up bright and early, maybe have um, wholesome meal, maybe some yams from the farm or, um, or some porridge and then go to the fields the entire day do a good day's work of digging or planting or whatever it was that yeah. we're doing and then walk back home and, you know, have a, well, you know, um, have a great supper. If you look at kind of what we do, we wake up in the morning and we reach for the frosted, you know, yeah. <laughs> flakes or whatever it is. And, um, you know, we quickly get an Uber or jump into your car and, you know, go sit uh, in your office the entire day, push paper for whatever time it is, get an Uber or a car back, pass through KFC, get your fried food and things <laughs> and, <laughs> and, yeah. and promptly return. And so that has actually been uh, postulated to be one of the reasons why we are seeing an emerging epidemic, not just of cancers, but even things like, you know, obesity, including childhood obesity, yeah. which previously we wouldn't have thought about in sub-Saharan Africa, oh, yeah. just because more sedentary. So the two things that actually do make a difference Again, some of the time, one of the myths around, sorry, I'm just going to talk about them non-modifiable so I can put them out of the um, way. But one of the things, one of the myths we certainly hear around breast cancers is that, oh, I don't have a family history, right? So most people think that you need to have somebody in the family uh, that's had cancer for you to have um, breast cancer. Yeah, And we're probably, yeah, I was saying um, People think that one of the myths that we tend to hear around breast cancer is that, oh, I don't have a family history, so I'm fine. Whereas we know, uh, if we look at the data, that only 10% of breast cancers have a genetic component, meaning your family, you have a member of the family that has uh, cancer. Most yeah. people will be familiar with Angelina Jolie and her family history and yeah. the fact that she decided to have a double mastectomy and, um, and uh, have her ovaries out. But that is because um, she had a demonstrated um, family history where you look at her, um, what you call your first degree relatives. Her mother had a cancer, yeah. her aunt had, had yeah. cancer. 
And so she had a demonstrated gene, what they call the breast cancer, the BRCA gene. Mm. And that increases your risk of breast and ovarian cancers. But that's yeah. only in 10% of uh, all cancers. Yes. The 90% of them, which is the majority of cancers, are what you call sporadic. Mm. Meaning that it just happens. And, yeah. Exactly. And nobody can... Um, uh, can um, actually explain why. And that, I think, is also an important concept, especially in the African context, where we always try to assign blame and meaning, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody mm -hmm. looked at me, my, my, that, that yeah. guy looked at me, mm -hmm. looked shifty. it must have been, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or I put some little money in my bra and that must have been the cause or I bumped mm. myself. So we're like, sometimes these things just happen. But yeah. um, in terms of, and again, it's also we've talked about risks. So those are the non-modifiable stuff you can't change. You can't change yeah. who your family is. Luckily, you can choose your friends, but sometimes you can't change your family, right? But um, the things that you can change and do make consistent uh, difference are diet and exercise. Yes. Right? And so I'll talk a little about that. Um, especially as far as diet's concerned, we say as long as you're eating healthy, that should be adequate. And what do we mean by sort of healthy? Mm -hmm. um, what we say is if you have an eight-inch plate, please note it's about eight inches. <laughs> <laughs> because sometimes we have this chat with patients and they come up with this like 20 or 12, you know, 15-inch plate. We're like, no, 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 that's not the size of the plate in first place. Yeah. But um, if you have an eight, roughly an eight-inch plate, we say half the plate needs to be, um, needs to be at least uh, vegetable, fruit or yes. vegetable. Now, um, we always say, again, look at the preparation methods. I mean, if you're going to torture the um, vegetables on the stove for two hours and expect any nutritional value, it's gone. Yeah, then, you know, <laughs> that ship has sailed. And we say, if you're looking at things like cruciferous vegetables, uh, cauliflower, the broccoli still needs to have the bite. Yeah. Right. And then if you're looking at things like leafy vegetables, the spinach, um, the kale, it still needs to be that sort of bright green face stage before it goes to a darker green yeah and that's when you get the most nutritional value again in terms of the uh, we say a quarter of the plate needs to be carbohydrates and again look at the um carbohydrates that you're putting in we generally have a broad distinction between sort of low um foods that have a low glycemic index and a high glycemic index i don't know if you've sort of heard the classification uh, i ha i haven't no Okay, so gly glycemia is just Latin for glucose. Yeah, so it's I just a fancy that. way of saying uh, <laughs> foods that have a high glycemic index have high sugars, mm. basically. Mm. Now, the challenge behind, we always say as a rough guide, you want to be trying to incorporate um, foods that have a low glycemic index, meaning yeah. a low sugar. Yeah. Um, at least a lot more into your diet, more than foods that have a high glycemic index. Yes. Just as a rough guide, <laughs> somebody once, one of my patients said, everything good in life <laughs> 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 seems, to have, <laughs> seems to have a high glycemic index, but these are the more processed foods, the, yeah. the you know, the um, pizzas, the um, donuts, the um, pastries and stuff. But, the, but what happens with um, foods that give you a high sugar load is that the body's response to that is to give you high insulin. And yeah. insulin is the um, hormone that's involved in sugar production, which if you don't have, you get diabetes. But yeah. you, so you get high sugar, high insulin, and the net result of that is that you get your sugars going from really high, really low, yeah. dropping very rapidly. 
Yeah. And the net effect of that is that's why you're like, dude, I just had four slices of pizza two hours ago. Why am I hungry? Right. And so the net result of those sugar fluctuations is that you now start looking around for something to for food on. And all that's the time. when you're more likely, exactly. And that's when you're more likely to hit on whatever's available, whether it's crisps, whether it's, you know, candy, whether it's whatever. And so we say foods that have um, more complex um, um, sugars, like the um, whole wheat or bran or uh, whatever, tend to give you a more consistent sugar level yeah. over the day. Yeah. And so those at least, um, and that's why you notice sometimes when you take oatmeal or something in the morning when you are less hungry yeah. um, throughout the day and stuff. So investing in um, some of these um, healthier options. But again, with everything, it can, it's a lifestyle. You're not just going to wake yeah. up and oh, say, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, from this day forward, I mean, we're, we're all going to have brown flour. For, 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 me, <laughs> for me, uh, I've uh, modified my food. Mm-hmm. A lot. Uh, yeah. Now I eat twice a day. I, I'm nearly fifty, so mm-hmm. I don't. Uh, I don't need so much food. I'm not mm-hmm. as active as I used to be, so I have to mm-hmm. re- reduce my food uh, by yeah. half or even more than half. You know, and yeah. I eat yeah. twice a day, uh, and I eat a lot of fiber. I eat yeah. a lot of ve- vegetables. I I don't yeah. eat. I don't eat beef anymore. I haven't eaten beef for at least a year now. You know, okay. uh, but I, I eat fish. Uh, yeah. I eat eggs. Uh, yeah. So I've changed a lot. I don't. I don't. I don't eat sugar at all. I don't add okay. sugar, but I eat. I eat uh, honey. I use honey yeah. rather than sugar. So I've mm-hmm. made this kind of adjustments for my for myself yeah, yeah. And i yeah. encourage my daughters to do the same although yeah. they don't they don't want to they say no as we, exactly and with and with all of these as we said it's it's a journey and it's it's, yes. it's a lifestyle whatever that you're sort of gradually building in and so what we encourage people to do is we say small frequent changes and gradually try and incorporate some of these healthier options yeah it doesn't mean that kind of, for instance, that, you know, um, one of your daughters is having a birthday and you can't have a slice. Oh, of no, of, of course, whatever. of course. And exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Life still has to go on. Yeah, hey? yeah. So as long as you're consistently making healthier choices, and as you said, you know, you're not taking red meat anymore. And sometimes we underestimate the very good sources of, I would say, plant protein that we frequently underestimate beans peas the legumes yeah exactly and then especially with the um uh, animal based products then uh, we say you want to lean more towards um um white meat chicken like the fish yeah and the chicken uh, i doesn't mean that you can't absolutely have red meat but the no. recommendations are try and limit the portions that you're having yeah. and try and ensure that it's lean red meat yeah now the other thing that does make a huge difference is exercise as well oh yeah now, again, if you look at the World Health recommendations, they say, you know, 30 minutes of cardio three times a week. Now, very few of us are actually achieving that. Oh, well, me, so, for me, I do at least at least two miles every day. Oh, you excellent. Yeah. Excellent. So you're one of the rare ones. And so what <laughs> well, <is laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do it now when the sun is up. Because by yes, winter, yes. I have difficulty walking outside in the winter. So, yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to, if possible, accumulate my, my walking for the year. Your benefits <laughs> now. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you yeah, for that. What we, what we encourage people is, uh, again, just having um, small, consistent changes. Yes. So you can tell yourself, because what happens and why people frequently fall off the wagon is, you know, you wake up and you're like, okay, I need to get fit or I need to lose weight. And, you know, you, you sort of say, that's me 30 minutes in the gym for the first two weeks. And your body starts to protest and say, uh, I don't know what your plans are. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> and yeah. so say small consistent changes so even if you tell yourself i'm going to take you know at least 30 minutes once a week and do that consistently for maybe three to four months yeah and then try and build that up in time uh to maybe twice a week and then gradually maybe maintain that for another couple of months and then gradually get to a level where it's become a way of life yes the other thing we always encourage is find something you like to do some people like to go to the gym bless them some people like to swim some people like to do zumba so it's more about finding something that's going to, you know, interest and engage you and keep you um, yeah. active. Uh, see, the, the um, more the more Africa becomes urbanized, the more we need to uh, ad- develop and adapt these changes because the people in the villages don't suffer all those things, you know? Absolutely. Because Absolutely. They, they, are, they, are, they are active they eat healthy, you know, all these things. Exactly. And they're exactly. lean. They're, lean. they're not, they're not uh, big and fat. They're lean, yeah. you know. And that's, that's actually one of the challenges of urbanization. I don't know how true this is, but somebody was saying um, there's data to suggest that um, anywhere between 40 to 50% of uh, women living in urban areas in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa might actually be obese. Yeah, oh, I yeah. don't know how true that is, but well, I can, um, I can tell you a... in, in, in Lagos, <laughs> in Lagos in particular, you can see it everywhere. Yeah. Okay, yeah, you can you, you can yeah. see it everywhere very easily. Yeah, at least when I was yeah. there, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and maybe just a note, Akene, on um, risk factors because. Um, one of the things to sort of note about risk factors is that having a risk factor doesn't, doesn't mean, mean you you're have going it. to get a cancer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, interestingly, not having a risk factor doesn't, doesn't mean, mean you, you won't would... get it either. Exactly, right? exactly. Because sometimes people uh, sometimes have a family history or whatever, and they're freaking out. They're like, you know, um, what's going on? Am I at risk? And we're like, yes, you are at risk, but that, and that might be maybe depending on your family history, slightly higher, but it doesn't always translate into you will definitely get it. Yeah. And so it's important to have that um, consideration yeah. because yeah. sometimes mm-hmm. patients come and see us and they're like, you know, I've been living healthy. I've been eating. Okay. I've been, you know, going to the gym. I've been, you know, honoring my temple and, you know, eating judiciously. So why did I get my cancer? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it's important just to realize, even with those, I mean, we're, we're still all at risk, and that's why it's important to have um, regular screenings and yeah. things, especially yeah. for breast cancer. The, the good thing is that in the UK, for, they do more regular screening. In fact, uh, this shop close to my house, they have a, a truck with screening. So people come there you know regularly and the uh our gps send the ladies uh mm-hmm. to for screening you know from time to time so yeah they're doing it i i hope uh africa would will, will come 
to an age where we do this more frequently, you know, to help yeah, our, absolutely. our ladies. I think, absolutely. I think part of the challenge has been the uh, cost of uh, screening mammography. And I think um, part of the challenges have been just even the whole infrastructure to support mm, yeah. um, screening and interpretation because um, we've had, um, for instance, in Kenya, we've had all our counties, we have about 27 counties that have all been, um, that have all had mammography machines. And now we're, we're like, okay, we need people to actually man Do the it. machines yep, yep, and interpret yep. them. But that's only an additional, that's one layer. But the other layer is that, again, um, we also need to sh have a shift in terms of our approach to illness and health-seeking behavior. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because if we um, sort of talk to the average um, person on the street, there's, um, you would find that there's, a one, a lack of awareness um, of the need for screening. Um, and two, there's the mindset of, why am I going to look for trouble? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so I would rather not know. And we're saying, ironically, this is something you would rather know, and you would rather know early. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so we sometimes give the analogy, uh, especially for those who drive, is that you know we we treat our cars better than we treat ourselves. Oh yeah. Right. Because after every couple of hours, you take the you know you take the car in for a service and yeah. get a check. Whereas for our bodies, if we use the analogy, we actually wait for the car to break down, mm. and then we're like, take it to the hospital and figure out what's wrong. And, and, and many, so... many times, <laughs> when it, when our body is breaking down, we actually refuse to take it to the hospital because Absolutely. we are we are afraid of what the doctors will find, and exactly. we we'll, we'll rather stay home longer than necessary. Absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's, and so we're saying that that's, that's a major um, uh, barrier that we do need to, I mean, that we are trying to address, but that definitely needs to be improved in terms of just getting into the culture of regular checks. And it's normal to actually have, yes. you know, an exam, even when you're feeling fine. Um, and I think one of the ways that we've tried to approach this from a health systems perspective is looking at integrating screening with um, primary health care facilities okay. because that's ideally where the um, screening should take place. Yes. So any mother who's coming in for um, who's coming in for maybe um, antenatal screening yeah. or uh, or is coming for family planning services or immunization. Yeah. The idea is to leverage those encounters those, and say, very hey, good. have you had a very good. exam? Very good. Stuff and that kind of thing. Um, because again, we mo many countries do not necessarily have the infrastructure to support widespread mammography screening. Yeah. But one of the approaches that we've been trying to have, especially in terms of downstaging, is... Um, early detection strategies like clinical yeah. breast exam. And so again, coming down to the healthcare workforce, if we're able to empower the workforce, um, this, late, this nurse who's sitting with this patient and offering family planning, mm -hmm. just to give her the skills to talk about breast or cervical cancers, yeah. give her the skills to do a good clinical breast exam, then there's a potential of picking up lumps earlier and still yeah. sending appropriate referrals in a timely fashion. So that has been a key strategy from a policy level uh, for many uh, low and middle income countries in trying to sort of... Um, uh, mitigate some of the um, challenges we're having with um, uh, delayed uh, diagnosis yes. as well. Yes, yeah. yes. Very good, very good. So uh, you talked about the 
UICC earlier, your role, your role as a as a member of the board of directors, and you mentioned that uh, you guys in in Africa uh, have a goal to develop a uh, regional, a robust regional collaboration, okay, for care and treatment of cancer patients in sub-Saharan Africa. So as a region, so how how is the process working the, in terms of the collaboration? Yeah, so there's, um, thanks, good question, uh, Ikane, and I'm, I'm probably going to put on my, my other hat now, <laughs> because uh, I'm the uh, Vice President East Africa for the okay. um, African Organization for Research and Training in Cancer. Okay. And so um, through AOTIC, um, as it's called, um, there's definitely been um, a number of, one, in, in terms of knowledge sharing, mm. okay? Um, knowledge. Uh, so then, um, in terms of, and I think the we always say the silver lining behind the um, the um, uh, pandemic has been that we are more um, connected, as it were, and people yes. are more receptive to virtual modules of learning and stuff. So there's a quite a bit of, uh, I would say, shared uh, knowledge sharing, and this has uh, translated um, sometimes into patient care. Okay. Um, what's happened is, uh, remember we've had we talked about a multidisciplinary team yeah. approach mm-hmm. uh, towards mm-hmm. um, care, and many centers maybe don't necessarily have all those um, uh, cadres of, yes. of, of, so of they can, professionals. Very good. That's and true. So, and so now we're setting up virtual tumor boards where yeah. there's knowledge exchange. People discuss uh, patients and management. So despite not having so, so maybe an this, oncologist. Sorry. So this this is this is a good. Uh, impact of the exactly. pandemic. Very exactly. good. This is this is as I said, and it, 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 to con- <laughs> it, it to continue after after. Abs- oh, very good. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, again, now I'm going to talk about my other hat. Because, <laughs> uh, as part of the as the chair for the Kenya Society for Hematology and Oncology, uh, Kesho, what happens is we have a lot of um, regional um, shared knowledge. Um, again, um, ideas. Um, so we, through Aortic and Kesha, we pretty much end up covering most of Eastern and actually quite a bit of Western Southern Africa. Okay. And so uh, speaking of screening and early detection, I'm going to throw a plug in for a, uh, we're actually having a screening and early detection um, symposium in, in, okay. uh, on August the 19th, just looking at what are the innovations and um strategies that we can employ to improve access and early detection of cancers um, for our patients. And that is actually a combined initiative by um, Kesho, um, uh, Aortic, and UICC um, to actually try and push the needle in terms of yes. um, this particular um, symposium is, a, uh, is, is actually um, through the efforts of um, Aortic, okay. Kesho, and yeah. the UICC Okay. This is a collaborative effort to see if we can help to um, well push the needle yeah. uh, in terms of improving care for our patients and timely diagnoses. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Wow. Miriam, it's been exciting and very uh, educational for me uh, to talk to you today. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> right now, I'm going to ask you 
the last question. This is what I do okay. for all my guests. Okay. So I ask people to look beyond the immediate horizon uh, mm-hmm. to look 10, 20 years from today. So mm-hmm. how do you see cancer treatment and overall healthcare in Africa in uh, 20, 30 years from now? Um, wow, well, that's an interesting question, Ekene. Um, I think I'm actually optimistic. Hey, I'm I, I'm really really optimistic. Um, there's been I would say exponential growth. If we just look at the cancer space, for instance, um, over the last ten years, we've yes. seen almost double the number of uh, countries in Sub-Saharan Africa having a national cancer control program. Very good. Meaning, we actually are acknowledging that this is a problem. Yeah, we need to be able to sort it out. And you know, we say. The first step is actually acknowledging it. Now yes. you can imagine if you're trying to sort out cancer and you don't even have a national cancer program, Yeah. right? Now, those are the initial steps. Now, now it's getting the robustness behind how effective is this cancer control program? How are they, um, you know, how are they behaving? But I think the reason I'm equally optimistic is one, the interest and awareness that, um, that cancer is a problem and we are tackling it. But two, also the opportunities to collaborate. And yeah. I would say um, one of the things that we've experienced is almost one would say um, leapfrogging technologies. And I think one of the um, um, best things about, <laughs> and I'm just bragging on my continent, is that we need to brag sometimes. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. We have the brightest mind innovations and just looking at we don't necessarily need to do um we we don't necessarily need to do everything exactly like it's done in western countries and i think there's been a growing critical mass of you know young um uh, oncologists uh, motivated everyone keen uh, and not just oncologists the whole spectrum researchers health workers trying to look at how do we tackle um and how do we get organic homegrown solutions for African yeah. problems, yeah. right? I mean, the days of us sort of waiting for, you know, um, guidance or whatever to come from the mountain is, is, is long gone. We're sort of realizing, hey, <laughs> this is where we are and this is what we need to do. We could, the solutions have to come from us because yeah. we're the ones who know where the shoe pinches. And whereas we expect and appreciate and totally are appreciative of the collaborations that may ensue, we have to be the primary drivers if we are to impact care or make a difference in our communities. Very good. So very good. The future is bright. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. See, I'm I'm so happy I spoke to you today. Um yeah. I, I mean uh we know cancer is a problem and I talking to you our continent is taking it seriously. Okay. Absolutely. And uh um, so I'm also I'm I'm also very optimistic about the future, you know. Yeah, yeah I am. That's not to say that we have quite a bit of work ahead of us. Oh yeah. I think, see, um, <laughs> no, see, see, like like to... like you said, once you acknowledge anything, then you are yes. preparing to deal with it, and that's Absolutely. all we need to do. See. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, yeah. Thank, thank you very much for 
been a guest of uh, the Think Big for Africa podcast. Thanks so much, Akene. I'm hoping, um, I'm grateful to be here and it's been really nice <laughs> exchanging yeah. ideas and uh, looking forward to thinking bigger. <laughs> yes. Thank you All very right. much. Thank you. Okay. Bye. All right. Yeah. Thanks so much. Stay safe. You too. Listen or watch more episodes of Think Big for Africa podcast with new guests every week. Subscribe to ensure that you are notified whenever new episodes are available.